Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning, and welcome to the well here at STSA. I know I say this all the time when I'm up here, how excited I am for today, but I got to tell you, I am super duper excited for today. And the reason why, for those of you who are just joining us here today for the first time, is I have been off from preaching for what seems like an eternity. They had me shut up and sat down in the chair over there for one, two, three, four Sundays. I haven't been up here to speak. And I got a lot stored up inside me and it's all coming out today. So all the time limits go out. No, no, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Okay. But seriously, seriously, see, early on in my priesthood, I was, trying to, I was trying to figure something out here. Early on in my priesthood, if you'd have told me you get four Sundays off from preaching, I'd have been the happiest person in the whole wide world. And this is a preacher loves a week off like everyone wants a week off. So for me, it used to always be like, I, I, I can't wait for a week off. But something happened recently. I don't know what it quite is. See, I used to want a week off because between getting nervous from getting up here on stage, which I still get nervous from getting up here on stage, and the preparation required, and just the feeling of like, you know, all these eyes are looking at you, and no matter how many times you do this, you never want to be stared at by everybody in the whole wide world. So I always feel like, you know what, if I could do anything other than preach, that's the best. And I still have the nerves, and I still have the feeling of inadequacy, and I still have the whatever, but I have something greater these days, which makes me want to get back up here on stage. I'm still nervous. I still don't feel like I'm good enough. I still feel like I'm kind of out there. But there's something that outweighs all those things. You know what that is? I have a passion for what I'm preaching. And as nervous as I am, and as serious as I take this, and as much as I want to sit there in the crowd versus stand up here with the stage and the microphone and all that stuff, is that I feel like there's something good that I've discovered, something great that I've discovered. And when you know when you find something great, something beautiful, something amazing, you want to share that. Like, what fun is it to discover something great and not be able to share it with it? Right, ladies? What, what good is it to discover that you, uh, the guy that he proposed to you? What's the fun of getting proposed if you can't share it with all your friends? You've got to keep it a secret. When you have a baby, the first thing you want to do is you want to tell the whole wide world, I'm pregnant, I'm pregnant, I have a baby. What fun is it to eat chocolate chip pancakes for breakfast if you can't take a picture and show the whole wide world about your great breakfast? So that's how I feel. And specifically in this series... I want to share something that if you rip me deep inside and open up inside me at my core of what drives me and what pushes me and what motivates me and who am I at my core, you're going to find the message that I'm going to share today and over the next four weeks, today and over the next three weeks, I should say, which is based on a story about a lady named Esther. But before I tell you her story, let me back up and tell you when this message came clear to me. The year was 2010. I'd been approaching 10 years of priesthood, and at that time, I was serving and uh, we were doing great, and the church was great, and everything was great, and I'm serving, and I'm serving, and I'm serving, and I'm working hard, and I'm loving what I'm doing. But something was a little off. Something was a little off. And the best way that I can describe it to people is that I hadn't quite yet found my sweet spot. And you know, for those who play in tennis or baseball or any I, the concept of the sweet spot, if you're playing tennis, okay, you have a racket, and anywhere on the racket will move the ball. But there's the sweet spot that's the best spot to hit it in. If you hit it on the sweet spot, little effort, far ways. Good power from very little. Like that sweet spot. That The whole thing can get the job done, but your sweet spot. And I believe that everyone has a sweet spot in life with your career and with my career and with your service and with my service. And I was serving and I was doing, but I hadn't quite yet found my sweet spot. And I felt very strongly I knew what my sweet spot was. My sweet spot was bringing an ancient faith to a modern world. I always felt like that's where, like, that's what God made me to do. 
was to take the beauty that we have in orthodoxy and to bring that to people who may not have grown up in it or maybe grew up thinking that it's one thing, but it's not really that. Like the whole last two series that we were talking about, like that's me at my core. To bring an ancient faith to a modern world to show people that maybe God isn't who they think he is and to really go out there and take that message to people who never heard it before. So I started praying. And I started praying. And I started praying. And I really felt with all my heart, like I said, I've been a priest about 10 years at the time, and I was serving in a big church over out there in, in Fairfax. And I really felt that in order to really take this ancient faith to a modern world, we needed to start a new church. And I really felt with all my heart that was the step that needed to take place next. So I did what anyone, any spiritual person would do. I prayed. I said, please, God, make this happen. And I prayed. And please, God, open the doors. And I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed. And what happened was nothing. You know, crickets? That's what my prayer was. And the more I prayed, and the more I fasted, nothing was happening. At least so I thought. And I would say, okay, God, you put this on my heart. Like, I didn't put this on my heart. Like, you put this on my heart. You want This is a good thing. You want this? You make it happen. You open the door. No door. You give a sign to everyone else who has to make this decision that this is right. No. I remember we would go and we would visit the Pope. Right? So I, you, you meet the Pope, and the way you meet the Pope is there's a billion people, okay, and you go one by one and you greet, okay, individually. And like the, the, the famous priests, like he knows them, and he greets them by name. The me priest, like the guys in the back of the room, like we just want to just get in there and him not kick you out of the parties. But it's the way. So I'm going there, I'm like, okay, you know, I'm going to meet the Pope. Like the Pope is man of God. The Pope is like on the hierarchy, the totem pole of like close to God. It's like, it's like God, uh, the angels, St. Mary, Pope. Like he, he's right there in tune. So if God put this on my heart, God for sure ran it by the Pope. <laughs> like for sure got, got the approval. So I'm going to go up to the Pope. I'm smiling. He's going to say, you, I want you to start a new church in Arlington, Virginia. And I said, well, I'm expecting. So I'm up there in line and I'm like, we're going. And he just looks at me like a, to the left. So I'm like, you know what I mean? Like anything you want to say, like right now, nothing. You know what I mean? Like next was kind of the way I was, it was always. And the more and more I prayed, and the more and more I was waiting for a sign, the more every, no doors were opening and nothing was happening. And then I read a story about a woman who lived in the fifth century BC named Esther. And her story changed my life. This story, which can be found in the Bible in the Old Testament, doesn't talk about heaven and hell, doesn't have any prophecies about the coming Messiah, doesn't talk about prayer or faith or miracles. It's actually the only book in the entire Bible, in case you ever end up on Jeopardy, the only book in the entire Bible that does not even mention the name of God. And that book taught me something, which, like I said, if you go deep inside me and you want to know who is Father Anthony, what drives, what motivates, what pushes Father Anthony, it's exactly this lesson. I'm going to share the message with you right now, and then I'll show you where it came from. That message is this. Oh, that's not the message. The message is this. The message I learned that during that time period, the message I want to share with you over these next four weeks, is the invisible hand of God never, ever, 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 ever stops working. It's invisible. So you can't see. So you got to kind of sort of take my word on it because you can't see it. But the invisible hand of God, no matter what you don't see happening and what doors you don't see opening, 
the invisible hand of God never, ever, ever stops working. It's at that point in time that I came to the realization, a phrase that I've shared many times and I talk about it all the time, that God's silence does not equal God's absence. That God's silence, just because you see nothing doesn't mean nothing. Just because you hear nothing doesn't mean nothing. That God's silence does not equal God's absence. It's at that point in time that I came up with this picture in my mind. You know when you go to the orchestra or the symphony or the, the, the whatever, okay? I'd never gone, but let's say you did go to one of these things. Okay, I used to always wonder, you know that this guy, okay, like this guy. And everyone, like you have like all these people playing on the, the harp. And these people playing on, you know, the, 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 the tuba. And these people over here playing on the recorder. I don't know, okay, I'm not a musical guy. And these people all doing this stuff. And at the end of it, all these people, everyone, no one does nothing. And this one guy who didn't pick up an instrument, didn't make any effort. All he did is do like this, okay? Did like this for an hour. Okay, and then everyone claps for him and say, God bless that guy. He's the best. And give him all the credit. And I never understood it. Like, well, what's, what's, what's the deal with that guy? He didn't do anything. Like, these guys doing all the work. Well, you know what? What I discover from musical people will tell me this. That's actually the most important guy in the story. Is that that guy doesn't seem like he's doing anything. But that guy who is invisible for most of the, the production. You don't see him. You see tuba. You see flute. You see uh, uh, violin. You don't see maestro guy. But at the end of the story, the maestro walks out and everyone realizes he was running the show the entire time. That's God. That's God in your life today. And I want to show you that over the next coming weeks. When I learned that lesson back in 2010, when that God kind of opened my eyes to that, from that moment on, when I started to believe in the invisible hand of God, Things took a turn, and my life's never been the same ever since. The stuff, once I started believing in God's invisible hand, that he was working when I couldn't see him working, then stuff that was invisible started to become visible. Then doors that I didn't even know existed, because I kept looking for him to open this door, and doors that I didn't even know existed, all of a sudden opened. And stuff started to happen in me personally. Stuff started to happen in the landscape of the church. Stuff even started to happen in my wife and her search for a job, which I'll tell you, I'd be happy to tell you that story sometime, but not right now. God started working and working and work. I should let me say that again. God started opening my eyes to the work that he had been doing the entire time. And the end result, here we are today. Bringing an ancient faith to a modern world. How did all that come from a book in the Bible? Well, that's what we're going to talk about. But before we jump into the story of Esther, I hope you, are you as excited as I am about this story? that I do a good job of making you excited, okay? Because I hope that I conveyed it. I can go back and tell more stories if you're not excited, okay? I hope you're as excited as I am. But I have to warn you right off the bat, before we jump into the story, that when we talk about this story, and we read this story, it's going to change and challenge a lot of what you believe about God. It's going to challenge you to rethink a lot of the stuff that you always kind of thought. That's why it's a perfect follow-up to the last two series where we were kind of talking about the God we grew up with, maybe not the God we, that, that actually exists in the first place. And I'm going to challenge you to think outside of what maybe you were raised to think. For example, I'm going to challenge you to believe that God speaks louder in silence than he does when he speaks vocally, audibly. That God's silence is more instructive than his voice oftentimes. I'm going to challenge you to believe that the times where you can feel God's presence are important, but the times where you can't feel his presence are actually more important. And the most, watch this one, the most important work that God will do in your life oftentimes will be completely invisible to the naked eye. 
and you will never even see it. And I give you the analogy like you saw in the, in the little video up front. The perfect picture, if I take a seed and I put it in the soil and I drop it in there and I bury it and then I come out the next day, what do I see? Nothing. And I come out the next day, nothing. Next day, nothing. Next day, nothing. So what I'm going to do in that situation, what we do spiritually oftentimes, say, you know what? Shut her down. The operation didn't work. I dropped the seed, waited four days. I did the water. I did the stuff. Nothing happened. Shut her down. Move on to the next garden. Oh, no, 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 no. Not quite yet. Because we are, are now smart enough to understand just because we don't see stuff happening doesn't mean nothing is happening. And we realize that the most important stuff is actually happening right now. The most important stuff. Because it's starting to go down and build out roots and pull in nutrients here and bring in stuff from the soil. And all kinds of stuff is happening. And eventually you see a little sprout come up. But that little sprout, you'd be a fool if you think that the work began once you saw something overground. The most important work in the seed happens underneath the soil where you will never, ever, ever see. And I believe the same is true in your life. That's why our theme verse is Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. And I'm going to try to convince you over the coming weeks that this is true in your life. That you cannot search out and discover the ways of God. So just because you don't understand it, just because you don't see it, doesn't mean it's not there. It just simply means that you don't see it. But if you learn to trust it, then I promise you, it'll change your life. And actually, you know what? You already trust it. You already, you already trust that stuff, important stuff is happening that you can't feel and you can't see. You already believe it, and I'll prove it to you. Everyone right now in this room is sitting still, correct? Everyone's sitting still. Wrong. You are at this moment in time moving a thousand miles per hour in a circle as the earth is rotating every day, 24 hours, like this, okay? You're moving a thousand miles an hour. Right now, you're moving a thousand miles an hour as the earth is spinning around. Anybody feel nauseous? Anybody like hair is like flying around? Anybody? You feel nothing. But you know that just because I feel nothing, you're smart enough to be able to get this. And actually, forget about 1,000 miles an hour. You're actually moving even faster than that. As the Earth is spinning around the sun, you know how fast you're moving? You're moving at 66,000 miles an hour. That's more than 1,000 miles per minute. At 1,000 miles per minute means you could go from, from D.C. to San Francisco in three minutes. And that's how fast you're moving. Everybody hold on. You trust what you feel sitting still, or you trust what you know moving at 1,000 miles an hour? You trust what you see, nothing is moving, nothing is shaking, or you trust what you know, which is that we are moving? If you believe that a seed is growing underground when you can't see it, and you believe the earth is spinning and you can't feel it, then why won't you believe that God is working, even though you can't see or feel that either? King David says it this way in Psalm 121. I love this verse. Psalm 121, verse 3 and 4. It says, He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. He who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. God doesn't take naps. God doesn't have, like when I was praying during that time, I felt like I would pray and there would be like someone would come from heaven and be like, no, sorry, you missed, uh, come back tomorrow. That's how I felt. That's how oftentimes we feel. Like, no one's listening. Like, come back, uh, banker's hours. Like, come back tomorrow. No, God never slumbers. God never sleeps. 
God's ever like, ah, no. God is always open. And God is always working. And just because you don't see it doesn't mean that it's not happening. How in the world did I get all that message from a book that doesn't even mention the name of God? Let's jump into the book, all right? And first, before we do the book, let's introduce our characters. There's five main characters in this book. All right, and you see them listed up on the screen. The first one that we'll be introduced to is King Ahaziaharis. Let's say that one together. Say it after me. Say Ahaziaharis. Ahaziaharis. King Ahaziaharis, we open up the story. He is the king of the Persian Empire. He is the most powerful man in the world at this moment in time. He is, is, his empire right now is pretty much settled. It's in peace. He's not at war at this moment in time. But he, if he wanted to take over a country, he could. King Ahaziaharis could also be known by the name of Xerxes. His wife is named Queen Vashti. Say Vashti. Vashti was a strong-willed, feisty kind of a woman. Like if you like fighting for the women and the fighting up and speaking up, you're going to like Vashti. Okay, because she did not take no nothing from nobody, including her husband, the king. Every story needs a bad guy, and the bad guy is Haman. Say Haman. Haman is the wicked guy who has a plot to try to destroy all the Jews off the face of the planet. He was pre-Hitler, Hitler. He's the resident scumbucket of the story. You have Uncle Mordecai. Say Mordecai. Mordecai is a Jewish man who's living, okay, in 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 the Persian Empire. All right, they're they're captives right now. Like they're the, the Jewish people are captives, um, and he is a wise man. He's like a scribe kind of a guy working in the temple, and we'll see how he fits in a little bit. And then the star of the story is Esther, whose name means star, and she's also given the name Hadessa as her as her uh, Hebrew name, but then she gives herself a Greek name of Esther. Bottom line, the story is very simple. Here's, I'll give you all the story in a nutshell. You have this girl named Esther who's an orphan, who's a Jewish girl, poor girl, born in captivity. She ends up saving her people, the, the Israelites, from this wicked plot by Haman who wants to commit a genocide and wipe them all off the face of the planet. How does that happen? How does a poor orphan girl end up saving a nation? Well, we're going to jump in and we're going to read a passage from Esther chapter 1 and chapter 2. And I'm going to move through this kind of quickly, okay, just for the sake of the goal isn't a verse-by-verse -verse study, but just enough so that we get understand the context of what's happening right here. Esther chapter 1. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaziaharis. This was the Ahaziaharis who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia, meaning he reigned over the majority of the world at this time, at least the discovered world. In those days when King Ahaziaharis sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan the citadel, that in the third year, here's where our story picks up, of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him. So the king decides to throw a feast. You say, what's odd about that? Well, this wasn't no ordinary feast. Verse 4, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. How long has this party lasted? 180 days. That's a six-month party. That's me saying, come over for wings and drinks tonight. Take off from work, and you'll go back sometime in February. During this time, he shows off his riches, 
his kingdom, the splendor of his... Basically, he comes and said, hey, guys, come on over. Let me show you this cool stuff I got over here. Let me show you this cool stuff. And he shows him this stuff. They're like, okay, let's go. And he's like, no, 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 let me show you tomorrow. Let me show you. I got some more cool stuff over here. And he shows him this cool stuff. He's like, no, 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 no. I got some more cool stuff. All right? And they're having a great time. It's kind of, I, I, this six-month party, I think it was like the Kardashians on steroids kind of a situation. Okay? Now, the 180 days party eventually comes to an end. What do you do after you've been partying for 180 days if you are the ruler of the Persian Empire? What do you do? For six months, you've been partying with your closest boys. What do you do next? The after party. Very good. Very good on who said that. A married guy or single guy who said that? Okay. Single guy. Okay. That's fine. He can say that. Okay. He can say whatever he wants. Okay. And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days because you've only partied for 180 days. So the only way you have to cap it off with a after party. A feast lasting seven days. And watch this. Now, look who's on the guest list. All the people who were present in Shushan the citadel, from great to small in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Historians estimate that in the city at the time were roughly 10,000 citizens. He just threw a party for his 10,000 of his closest friends. And what were the instructions given to them when they came to the party? Next verse. There were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen, purple on silver rod. Basically, show off, show off, show off. Marble pillars, couches of gold and silver on the mosaic pavement of alabaster. Turquoise, white, vet, white and black marble, and they served drinks in golden vessels. Each vessel being different from the other with royal wine in abundance, according to the generosity of the king. They were having a good time. Watch verse 8. In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory. Okay, that's good. You didn't have to drink if you didn't want to, okay? For so the king had ordered, watch this, had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. I never ran for public office, but if I do, this is going to be my platform right here. This is how you get reelected. This is a national, everybody do what you want week. Anybody who want to drink, drink. Anybody who want to not drink, not drink. Anybody, they were commanded, the officers. Anybody who wants anything, you give it to them. But something was missing in this story. It mentioned the king, it mentioned his friends, it mentioned all the citizens. Who did it not mention? The queen. Verse 9. Queen Vashti, no surprise here, also made a feast. Also made a feast for the women in the royal palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. So you have like the king's party over here, then you have the queen's party. That doesn't sound like a very good situation. Verse 10, here comes the twist in the story. And on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials. She was beautiful to behold. He showed off his gold. He showed off his marble. He showed off his silver. He showed off all this stuff. He wanted to show off one more thing, his wife. So he commanded, bring her to me. Verse 12, but Queen Vashti, refused. Now, this is not a study of Queen Vashti, but if you, if you're a lady, okay, ladies, and you're strong, and you, you love Queen Vashti, okay, and Queen Vashti stood up and showed us that ladies can be strong, and beautiful, and elegant, and, eh, and she's the best. Now, that's what I think. The king doesn't actually think so, okay. When she refused to come in the king's command brought by his eunuchs, therefore the king was furious, and his anger burned within him. So what the king does next, then the king said to the wise men, 
who understood the times. For this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice, those closest to him being Karshanas, Shethar, Ad Admatha, Tarshish, Meriz, Marsena, and Memukin, the seven princes of Persian media who had access to the king's presence, who ranked highest in the kingdom. Why well, I want to show you this verse? Basically, the queen says no. What does the king do? Calls his top advisors in the kingdom to say, what do we do? A woman said no. How do we address this? He got the legal people. He got the royal. Like, what do we do? A woman said no. Is that in the book? Is she allowed to? We don't know. Let's check the law book right here. Verse 15. What shall we do to Queen Vashti according to the law? Because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus brought to him, brought to her by the eunuchs. Verse 16. Okay, ready? Before I show you, like, some people say the Bible's boring. I don't think the Bible's boring. I think the Bible's hysterical. And if you don't believe the Bible's hysterical, wait till you see what happens next. This is senior level, the cabinet guys, okay? Heads of like the Department of State, the Department of the Church, like all the senior guys in the Persian Empire coming together. What do we do with the woman who said no? Look what they come up with. And Memukin. Memukin must be some kind of rat kind of a guy because Memukin was quick to answer. And Memukin answered before the king and princes. Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's, watch this, Memukin, my man. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women. All women will know that they can say no. Her behavior will become known to all women so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes when they report that King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him and she did not come. Watch this. This very day, Memukin was kind of a drama queen. This very day, the noble ladies of Persia and media will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus, there will be excessive contempt and wrath. <laughs> if you ask me, I think Memukin had some issues at home. <laughs> and Memukin was looking for a lifeline to, to, to regain some control over his household. He said to the king, help, help us out here, man. Like, enough is enough. Verse 19, if it pleases the king, let a royal decree, this is what has come to for men to gain control of their households, let a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it will be, that it will not be altered, that Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. When the king's decree, which he will make is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is great, all wives... All wives will honor their husbands, both small and great. And we know, Memukin, which of the two you are, the small or the great one right here. Memukin said, we cannot have anarchy. King, throw us a lifeline to make these women say, say yes to us and not always say and not disrespect us the way they, that's what he's doing right there. He's a funny guy. And the king responds to him by basically the king, the reply pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Memukin. Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in their own script, to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house and speak in the language of his own people right here. So there you go, Memukin, you the man once again. It took a royal decree, which can never be altered, for your wife to respect you. Now, that's chapter one. What in the world does this have to do with God? This sounds like a scene from Animal House. Okay, this doesn't have nothing to do with God. I told you in the beginning that the invisible hand of God is always working. Where was the invisible hand of God working in chapter one? Did you catch it? 
Because if you're not looking for the invisible hand of God, you might miss it. Like if you just kind of go through the story, you say, I didn't see anything. Okay, let's go back. Did we see God's hand in it? How about this verse? Let the king, this is Memukin, the dirtbag. Let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. This verse has kind of slipped in there. But I went back and looked at it more closely, and I saw some fingerprints by this verse. And it looked to me like the fingerprints of God. And God didn't sign his name because it was Memukin talking. But I looked more closely, and I said, you know what? This looks like the handwriting of God. And Esther, spoiler alert, Vashti is getting the boot. She's about to lose her queenship. And the king is going to replace her. And the one who's going to replace her is someone named Esther. And Esther, orphan girl, Jewish girl, lives miles and miles away from the palace, has no idea what just happened with the queen, no idea about this royal decree, no idea about what is to come, the plot to kill her people. She has no idea about nothing. She's over there in the corner asking herself, where are you, God? Why am I an orphan? And why you took my parents? And why, God, you don't answer my prayer? And why, God, you leave us Jews in this captivity? And why, God, and where are you, God? And she's all the way over there in the corner. That God is asleep, and God is not even alive. And God is working. And God is working. And God is working. And the one who trusts that God is working right now, oh, stay tuned. Chapter 2, bring in Esther. We'll go through this quickly. After these things, when the wrath of the king has your hair subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done and what had been decreed against her. He remembered her, means he regretted his decision, which tends to happen, okay? You tend to regret the decisions you make after six months of partying, okay? You make an irrevocable decree after six months of drunkenness, you probably will make a stupid decision. So he comes to regret it, and he comes up with a plan. His servants say, okay, how can we make the king happy? The king's servants who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins, here's your solution, the virgins. Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, the citadel. And let beauty preparations be given them. Then let the young women who pleases, the young woman, I'm sorry, who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This thing pleased the king and he did so. Basically what he did, he made a decree. And the decree was, I'm sorry, made a decision. All the servants went around all the surrounding area. 127 provinces and gathered together all the beautiful young virgins. Historians tell us roughly 400 of them. 400 young ladies were brought in for the ultimate reality TV show. That one of you will be chosen to be the queen. And you will be given all the beauty preparations for one year. So this is a one-year reality TV show. You're all going to be brought in. They were brought in, many, some by, by choice, some not by their choice. And you will be one of them, will be chosen. Each one will go into the king for one night, and one will be chosen to be the queen. Next verse kind of shifts gears. Here's the story about the king in the palace, then all of a sudden it's like scene two in a far, 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 far away land. Verse five. In Shushan the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai. And Mordecai had brought up Hadessa, that is Esther, Hebrew name, Greek name his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. This young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Verse 8. So it was, 
when the king's command and decree were heard, when many young women were gathered at Shushan the citadel under the custody of Hegai, that's the, the king's servant, then Esther also was taken to the king's palace into the care of Hegai, the custodian of the women. This phrase, was taken, implies by force. Esther did not want to go. Why? If you were Esther, like, why wouldn't you want to be the queen? Wouldn't everyone want to be the queen? First of all, you're Esther. You're an orphan. You're living with Uncle Mordecai. No orphan wants to give up the family that they have. So yes, being a queen is a great, it sounds great, but I'm one of 400 women. I'm poor, they're rich. I'm Jewish, they're not Jewish. I am an orphan who's got nothing. I don't have any of the jewelry they have. I don't have any of the, like I don't have anything. There's no chance I win. Just leave me here to be miserable. But Esther was taken, meaning went against her will, sort of. And I would imagine that as Esther was kind of being, I don't think she was, I'm not saying dragged, like physically dragged, but kind of like, why am I going? Dumb. Why? If you could whisper in Esther's ear, why are you going, Esther? If Esther's saying, how did I end up here with these 400 catty, cat-fighting women? Just want to be the next queen. I don't want to be this thing. How did you end up here, Esther? Answer, the invisible hand of God brought me here. The invisible hand of God was working, never slumbers, never sleeps. Verse 9. Now the young woman pleased him, meaning Esther pleased Hegai, who was the head of like, like the king's servant. And she obtained his favor, so he readily gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowance, meaning they all were given, like each one has a bottle of perfume. She was given two. Each one was given you know, access to these oils. She was given extra access. He gave her extra. Then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. What's happening here? I'm not trying to get into the story, but what's happening here? She obtained favor. He gave her some extra. He moved her to the best spot. What is happening here? The invisible hand of God. Do you see the fingerprints? Do you see the fingerprints? Like God is doing something. God has an agenda. God is working. And he just threw in a little bit extra oil here. Uh, maid servant extra over there. Move you from this bed to this bed. Coincidence? Luck? Random? Where are you, God? Or maybe God's hand is working, but we just don't see it. Verse 15. Now when, her turn, now when the turn came for Esther to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch and custodian of the women, advised. And Esther obtained favor. We've seen that three times now. Obtained favor. Favor meaning grace. Obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace. Then the king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And he was so happy that how did he decide to celebrate? And the king made a great feast. Feast for Esther, for all his officials and servants, proclaimed a holiday in the provinces, and gave gifts according to the generosity of the king. The stage is now set. We're not going to go into any more of the story right now. All the characters are in place. God orchestrated, God used, and then Esther, come over here, stand over there, favor over here, boom, 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 and now he brought the king and Esther, and he laid the stage, and all the characters are set for the plot to unfold next week. But before we get to next week, did you know that right now as we speak, 
right now as we speak. As the earth is spinning and you don't feel it, as the seed is growing and you don't see it, right now, God is working in your life. And if I could make eye contact with every one of you, I would right now. God is working in your life right now. He never stops. You may not see it. You may not feel it. It may be like all quiet on the Western front as far as you're concerned. But I promise you that God never slumbers. And God speaks when we can't hear. God moves when we can't see. God orchestrates. We never even feel him in the room. But God is. Now, obviously, you can take this to an extreme. Okay, and I don't want to take this to an extreme, but you can if you want, okay, but that's, that's not right. Like you can, you know, I'm driving down the street and I see a billboard, uh, you know, that says, uh, work with this. So I quit my job and say that was a sign from God, okay. Or I met this girl, we have the same initials, must be from God. Like not, not in a weirdo, like, like Christian fortune cookie kind of a way. That's sometimes how we want. That's, that's to the extreme. But what I'm saying is right now, can you trust that God is working in your life right now, even though you don't see it. I believe with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, I believe with all my heart that God is always working in my life. And I'm telling you, God is always working. God is always speaking. God is always moving. And I'm telling you that, and I'll tell you right now, right after I say that, I have never once heard an audible sound of God. I've never once like been awoken in the middle of the night with a dream that says like, this is what God wants. I've never seen the handwriting in the sky. Actually, you know what? When I wake up in the middle of the night with a dream, my dreams are usually funny. It always usually have something to do with me in the circus juggling or something like that. So I'm not like one of those guys who are like, yes, I hear God. Or yes, God spoke. I'm not like that. But I have 100% confidence that even though I've never seen it, even though I've never heard it, that I have no doubt that God is speaking to me. And that God is moving in my life. And he's doing the same for you if you'll just trust him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, St. Paul says that we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith, not by sight. Do you believe? Do you walk by faith or by sight? Do you believe that the only doors that God is working on right now are the ones that you see in front of you? Or do you believe God may be opening doors that you don't even see? Do you believe that the only circumstances that God is involved in is what you see right in front of you right now? Or do you believe that maybe that God is working behind the scenes, backstage, and he just hasn't walked out on the screen yet. He's orchestrating, and he's over here. And you're like over there, and you're like, little attention. He's like, no, at the right time, but I'm working over here, and I'm working over here, and I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to tell you sing, I'm going to tell you quiet, I'm going to tell you. He's orchestrating. He's maestro of the universe. Do you believe that or you don't believe that? What I discovered is that when I believe it, I see it. Not when I see it, I believe it. When I believe it, I see it. Because so many times, where are you, God? Where are you, God? Where are you, God? I trust you, God. Ah, now I see you, God. And I hope that you can look back on your life the way I can on mine and see the invisible hand of God. And you look back and you're like, I didn't, and I didn't, and I didn't know, and I wasn't. And you look back and you see that handwriting looks familiar. Those fingerprints. What is that? That's the invisible hand of God strikes again. <clears throat> but there's something that you have to do in order to see it. Let me say it better. It's something you have to stop doing in order to see it. Because if there's one thing, there's one thing that if you do this one thing, you will never see the hand of God. If you do this one thing, you will never see the invisible hand of God. The only way to see the invisible hand of God is to stop doing complain. I promise you, I promise you, 
Complaining stops you from seeing the invisible hand of God. Complaining, even I want to go further, complaining will stop the invisible hand of God from even working. Not that he'll stop working, but you will close yourself off to his working. If anybody had a right to complain, woe is me, where are you, God? It was Esther. Orphan, captivity, poured, now dragged into this stupid competition. She didn't complain. She said, I know God, you're doing something. I don't know what you're doing, but I know you're doing something. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Why? That you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault, in the midst of crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. I want to draw a line between complaining and shine and say you'll never go from complaining to shine. It's either complaining or shine. Esther. You want to shine? No complain. You want to complain? No shine. And it's up to you which of the two that you're going to do. Now, with that said, let me kind of take a step back and tell you, I'm not saying that just kind of smile and kind of accept whatever is in your life and just say, like, I know your circumstances are tough. I meet with people all the time who tell me circumstances, and I say, you know what? That stinks. That's tough. I'm, I, it stinks that your relationship with your, your daughter is that way. It stinks that your that you you know that that your situation at work is like that. It stinks that so and so got sick and there's no solution. It stinks that you can't find a job. It stinks that ever since I got married, all the good guys are gone. I know, okay, like I know, I understand, okay. I'm not saying that your problem is not a problem, but what I'm saying is you can choose either to trust the invisible hand of God or to complain, but you can't do both. You can't complain. And at the same, try and tr same time, trust, invisible hand of God is working. David would have never defeated Goliath if he was complaining about how tall and strong he was. Moses would have never crossed the Red Sea if he was complaining about how high the water was. St. Paul would have never preached Christianity to the ends of the earth if he was complaining about how mean the bad guys were who didn't like his message. All those guys, like Esther, instead of complaining about the problem, I mean, they had their eyes on the invisible hand of God. Same invisible hand that Jesus himself taught us when he was on the cross. Look what it says here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. It says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. What example? What steps? Who, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Here's the important part. He committed himself to him who judges righteously. And if I had to modify that for our specific message today, he committed himself to him who works invisibly. He committed himself to him who works underneath the soil. And he trusted. And he knew that what you see is not what you get. Because God is working underneath. Right now, can anybody see their heart beating? Can anybody see their heart beating? Can anybody see their lungs expanding and not expanding? Can anybody see their hair growing? Can anyone see themselves getting taller, shorter, bigger? Thin like can, anyone, can anyone see last night's dinner pouring the cholesterol? Can anyone see that? But do you doubt any of those things? Do you doubt that steak last night added cholesterol? Do you doubt that, that, that you are, your heart is beating? Do you doubt that your lungs are going? Do you doubt any of those things? You don't doubt it. You believe what you can't see. 
and you realize that if you had the right tool, you could see those things. Well, I'm telling you, hair growth, uh, body, the cholesterol, all the stuff I said, ways of God. Ways of God. So you need a pretty big tool, a pretty cool microscope to be able to see that. But it doesn't mean it's not taking place. This was our verse from the beginning. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. At this moment in time, I'm not saying that God is controlling. I'm not saying God is controlling your circumstances and controlling. I'm not saying he's controlling in the sense that you're just a puppet. But what I am saying is that he is working. And I'm asking you to believe it. Do you see why reading the Bible is so important? Do you see why reading the Bible is so important? Like this is just like a little aside before I wrap up. Do you see why reading the Bible is so important? Like if you never read the Bible, if all you did was look out there, you would believe. If all you did was read the news, if all you did was look on Facebook, if all you did was see what's going out there, you would say, you know what? God is dead. God is dead. But when you open up the words of Scripture and you read the live accounts of people who have walked this road, you say, you know what? God is not dead. God is alive. And the more and more I read about how God has worked in the lives of others, and the more you share how God worked with you, and you share how God worked with you, and I read about how God worked with David, how God worked with Esther, I say, you know what? God is alive. And I start to understand God's ways. But this is why we need the word of God in our lives. This is why the people who don't have the Bible as a daily part of their life, if the Bible is not like part of the fabric of your life, I don't know how you make it through. No wonder you don't believe in the, in the work of God. No wonder. Because all you see out there is that God is dead. But we look at Esther. We see. But you know what? God never spoke to her. God never wrote it in the sky for her. God never sent her a letter. But God was so active in her life. And he took a poor, orphan, good-for-nothing girl in a corner of over there, had no hope in life, and he raised her up, not only to be the queen of Persia, but to be the one who would save the Hebrew nation from their destruction. And I'm telling you, the same way that he worked in that girl, same way he's working in you. But where? But how? But I don't see it. I don't hear it. Invisible hand of God never stops. I'm going to challenge you to do two things this week. We're going to read the story of Esther over the next coming weeks, but we're not going to read every verse, so I'm going to throw it out to you. Go back this week and read chapters 1 and 2. We went over them at a, at a high level, so you already know what's going to happen. And then on the back of your handout, Okay, also on the STSA app, on the notes, there's two questions for each chapter. Just take a look at those two questions. Just dig deeper. I did skim in the surface, but maybe you can go a little deeper and you can start to establish the habit of reading the Word of God and making the Word of God a regular part of your life. The second challenge that I'm going to throw out to you is I'm going to challenge you to say a prayer this week. I'm going to challenge you to say the following prayer five times this week, every day, every morning before you leave the house, to say the following prayer. It's a prayer of a Russian bishop who is named Philaret. It's on the bottom of your handout. It's about to appear up here on the screen. You're going to pray the following prayer, and you're going to say it with meaning. O oh Lord, grant me to greet the coming day in peace. Help me in all things to rely upon your holy will. In every hour of the day, reveal your will to me. Bless my dealings with all who surround me. Teach me. Here's the part that I love. Teach me to treat all that comes to me throughout the day with peace of soul 
and with the firm conviction that your will governs all. In all my deeds and words, guide my thoughts and feelings in unforeseen events. Let me not forget that all are sent by you. This is the prayer that I pray every morning. And every morning, I plant myself in the position and say that I am not alone. That no matter what I see or don't see, I am not alone. Trust, help me to trust the firm conviction that you, God, govern all that happens to me today. And your will is guiding my conversations. The, the, the random circumstances, the phone call from so-and-so, the email over here. Again, not to a crazy everything, the billboard, not to a crazy way. But to knowing that God's invisible hand never, ever, ever stops working. And if we trust it, we may start to see it. Y'all excited about Esther? Let's stand together and say a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you don't leave us alone in this world, Lord. And we know that you are working, and we can't see you at all times, but we trust you, Lord. And I pray during this coming week that you would open all of our eyes, open all of our eyes, Lord, to be able to see you in some small way, to know that you are working. And help us, Lord, give us the faith and the trust to be able to trust that you are working ways that we'll never know and never see. We love you with all our hearts, Lord, and we can't wait to dig further into this study to be able to see your invisible hand and to trust in it. We pray these things in the mighty name of your son, Jesus Christ, the prayers of all of your saints. Hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.